Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington. Today is Monday, June 20th, and here are some of the stories we're covering this morning. As nations commemorate World Refugee Day, the UN Refugee Agency says the number of forcibly displaced people globally has surpassed 100 million this year. We have seen funding shortages across the region and that have led to inflation cuts by up to 60%. Tension in Senegal over the government's decision to keep the opposition off the ballot in planned legislative elections. We are in a very volatile region. Democracy is at risk and Senegal is supposed to be a beacon of democracy, supposed to be a country that's pulling the region and the continent. And the 2022 Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting begins today in the Rwandan capital, Kigali. Those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the world watched in horror as many people fled their homes in the heart of Europe. Neighboring countries mobilized quickly to accommodate the new arrivals. The European Union issued a new directive giving Ukrainian refugees a temporary residence for up to a year. Meanwhile, nearly 90 million people were still displaced in other parts of the world. As we mark the World Refugee Day, Ian Ilgland, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, tells VOA's Carl Van Dam, it's as if the world is falling apart. We have never seen these numbers before, ever in modern history. Now 90 million people were either refugees or internally displaced within their own country at the end of last year. 90 million, that's more than twice the number 10 years ago. And then Ukraine came on top of that. So now we've been having records with more than 100 million people who have been driven out of their homes because of violence. So uh, it, it's really the, the world is not able to neither prevent conflict nor resolve conflict. And families have to flee at alarming uh, numbers and speed. How are humanitarian organizations like your own, the Norwegian Refugee Council, coping? How are you trying to prioritize, I guess, is the best way to look at it, prioritize these refugees in how you are helping them? Well, we in the Norwegian Refugee Council have been able to reach around 10 million refugees or internally displaced people or people who host them over the last every year over the last uh, two three years now we need to increase that number even further we have a large program in uh, ukraine uh, we are reaching people both in the east and in the south of ukraine where the fighting has at its fiercest we are in in all sides of the Syrian conflict. We're in Yemen, we're in uh, the Congo and Somalia, we're across the Sahel. We're in 30 countries where there are uh, displacement. But we are overstretched and underfunded like never before. We have less funding per person displaced than ever before. The world has to invest more in relief for people that are being displaced, but the world also has to invest much more in diplomacy and in conflict resolution, because at the moment, uh, the trends are very worrying. 
You mentioned how the Russian aggression in Ukraine has impacted refugee numbers. Has that directly impacted a lot of African countries? And if so, how? Well, it didn't become better in Africa or in the Middle East or Latin America or in for the Rohingyas on the border with Myanmar because it got worse in Europe. It got worse in all of these other places, but we're not seeing it. There is no coverage of that. It got worse in three ways. We have less funding in many of these areas uh, because so much of the resources go now to Europe. There is much less attention from world media. For example, in the Congo, in Africa, 27 million people need humanitarian relief, and nobody seems to cover this deep crisis. And thirdly, there is also less pragmatic and political energy to resolve these other conflicts because all eyes, all attention, all political diplomatic resources again go to Ukraine and Europe. That's Ian Egland, Secretary General of the International Humanitarian Group, Norwegian Refugee Council, speaking from Oslo, Norway, with my colleague Carol Van Dam. Meanwhile, ahead of the World Refugee Day today, viewers Reporter Ruben Chama spoke with UNHCR spokesperson for East, Horn of Africa, and the Great Lakes, Faith Casina. She began by highlighting the new challenges that face refugees in the region this year. We have seen funding shortages across the region um, that have led to food ration cuts by up to 60%. And the situation has been further compounded by COVID-19 lockdowns and measures to contain the spread of the pandemic, which had already reduced the availability of food in markets in, in refugee camps and impacted many refugees. As a result, um, refugees have been forced to take up negative coping strategies, such as keeping or reducing meals, selling assets, um, child labor, and of course, increased domestic violence. We also continue to see the effects of climate-related weather events, such as floods, uh, recently in South Sudan, and droughts, more specifically what's happening across Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia. Both farmlands and their livestock have been decimated, um, which has forced them to flee their homes in search of assistance. And of course, we still continue to see conflict and insecurity um, force people to flee, as witnessed in the past few weeks when thousands of people um, fled eastern Congo um, to Uganda, and of course, what's happening in northern Ethiopia. How has the drought crisis and the raising cost of food and fuel worsened the plight of refugees in the region? In terms of the drought, we, as mentioned before, have seen people's um, farmlands decimated, uh, people have lost their livestock um, because of the drought, which has been occasioned by almost four consecutive failed rainy seasons. Um, people are struggling to find food. Um, children have been forced to um, not go to school because they are helping their families for food or fend for their uh, basic needs. We also see women and girls being um, facing more protection risks um, the, uh, as a result of the drought, um, where because families are not able to provide or meet their basic needs, then um, there's increased domestic violence in the home. Women are forced to maybe travel long distances in search of water, which also makes them more vulnerable to protection risks. And the rising cost of food and fuel has just compounded that situation, continues to put them in a more precarious situation. But what is being done to alleviate the situation is that UNHCR and other agencies are continuing to talk to the humanitarian community and ensure that donors are able to release more funding to shoulder and, and to shield vulnerable people from these impacts in, in the region. What's the current situation in Tigray, north of Ethiopia? So the humanitarian situation in northern Ethiopia is still very worrying. 18 months into the conflict, the overall security situation remains complex and, and fluid. Um, and we continue to see effective delivery of life-saving assistance um, to the most affected populations, including refugees and internally displaced people, significantly hindered. Um, we, as UNHCR, we are also extremely worried about the safety and well-being of, of Eritrean refugees living in camps across northern Ethiopia. But in addition, UNHCR and partners continue to face challenges that are negatively impacting um, our ability to work and deliver assistance, including a volatile 
volatile security situation, lack of unhindered access to the most vulnerable. Uh, of course, there's the issue of fuel and cash uh, shortages, limited electrical power, as well as telecommunication services. Um, as a result, over 3 million people have been internally displaced, um, and we continue to see displacement occurring on a daily basis across the region. What has been the impact of COVID-19 on refugees? Um, the impact of COVID-19 on refugees um, has been disproportionately felt across the region. Um, um, again, this has meant that many refugees have been forced to adapt to negative coping mechanisms, um, such as skipping meals or borrowing money and getting into debt, so that they're able to meet their family's basic needs, leading to high levels of depression in some countries. And in some cases, we've increased um, in forced marriages uh, for young girls, which means then girls are denied the opportunity to complete their education, advance to um, higher levels of education, and, and, and realize their full potential. That was Faith Cassina, UNHCR regional spokesperson for East Horn of Africa and Great Lakes, speaking with VOA's Rubin Chama from Nairobi. The Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, also known as Chogam 2022, begins today Monday in the Rwandan capital Chigali. It will be the 26th meeting of the group. The Commonwealth is home to one-third of the world's population and includes both advanced economies and developing countries. It's a volunteer association of 54 independent and equal countries in Africa, Asia, the Americas, Europe, and the Pacific. The host Rwanda is the newest member, having joined in 2019. Michaela Rong is a writer and journalist with more than 20 years' experience of covering Africa. She's the author of Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad. I reached high in London for a reaction on the choice of the host nation. Well, um, I think um, it's, a, it's a very curious choice. Um, I think Rwanda uh, does not exemplify um, any of the values that we are told the Commonwealth believes in. The Commonwealth has a, a charter that um, members of the Commonwealth um, signed in 2012. Uh, they signed, signed up to... Um, values of freedom of democracy, of respect for civil society, of respect for freedom of expression. Um, and these are all values that are routinely being violated in Rwanda, which is an extremely repressive state where there is no freedom of the press, no freedom of expression, and where it's, it's, it's a pretty good guess that the election results are rigged every time, because what we see is President Paul Kagame winning you know, between 90, 95, sometimes 99% of the vote at every election. So I think it's fair to say that Rwanda does not exemplify the values the uh, Commonwealth is supposed to believe in. Um, and so I think it's rather anomalous and rather con contradictory for the Commonwealth to be um, staging its meeting there. It makes you wonder what the Commonwealth really believes in. And that's very worrying for Britain because Britain is supposed to be counting on the Commonwealth now that it's no longer a member of the EU. It's looking to the Commonwealth to open doors for it and, and maintain its connection with the rest of the world. But the Commonwealth doesn't seem to believe in many of the values that Britain says it embraces. So I do think there are a lot of question marks there. And uh, knowing, I'm sure the the Commonwealth knew all what you're saying. Why did they make a choice of Rwanda? Or is it, or should we give credit to President Kagame's public relations efforts? I think President Paul Kagame is an extremely aggressive and a dynamic um, African leader. And it will have mattered a great deal to him that he should host 
Chogham. Uh, he has in the past hosted Davos in Africa. He has hosted the African Union um, a summit. He has hosted the African Development Bank meetings. Um, you know, he has turned Kigali, his capital, uh, into an international uh, conference center. And it's a sort of poster, uh, a billboard for his regime. So I think it probably mattered a great deal to him to have Chogham staged in Kigali. Um, and he will have pushed that relentlessly. And what Kigame wants, he tends to get. Michaela Rong is a writer and journalist with more than 20 years' experience of covering Africa. She's also the author of Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad. She spoke with me from London. Zimbabwe government health workers, including doctors, will go on strike beginning today, Monday. Dr. Tapuanashe Sotera is head of the Zimbabwe Health Apex Council, representing 23 government health workers associations. He says workers have numerous grievances against the government, including the failure to provide a meaningful cost of living adjustment and the failure to review COVID-19 risk allowances. The government says it has provided free meals, transportation and accommodation to healthcare workers. Dr. Xotera tells VOA's James Bache the government is engaged in misinformation and has refused to engage the workers. The two reasons why we've gone on strike at this particular moment, the first and most obvious reason is the rapid deterioration in the economic environment. Official inflation is over 130%. Unofficial inflation, which is probably more reliable, is sitting at 324%. This has caused significant erosion of the earnings of the entire civil service, not just for health workers. To put things in perspective, a doctor earns 50,000 Zimbabwean dollars and the government provides an additional $175. Real value for the $50,000 is now 90 US dollars. So effectively, a relatively senior doctor in Zimbabwe is just slightly more than $260. This only gets worse for lower level members of staff. And so we have staff members taking home as little as 18,000 Zimbabwean dollars, which is less than 30 US dollars as the real market value. So we, we have a crisis of earnings and most healthcare workers are failing to make ends meet. The second reason for the strike action that is starting Monday morning is because the government has completely ignored deliberately health workers. We have a new minister who was appointed in September 2020. There has not been a single meeting in which the workers and the ministers have engaged formally in almost 19 months. Let me stop you there about the government. Sure. Um, I think my understanding is that uh, the government or the minister of finance has been providing, say, meals, free transportation and free accommodation to health workers. So that's part of the propaganda that the government continues to spew out on a daily basis. They do not provide transportation for healthcare workers. A typical hospital like Paranyatra, which is the biggest hospital in the country, has more than 5,000 employees. They provide a couple of buses, which is by no means sufficient to ferry the workers from the station to their respective homes. Needless to say that the transportation is only from the hospital into the central business district. 
people still have to make their own way from the central business district to their respective homes. They continue to talk about meals and accommodation, none of which is actually happening on the ground. So there is a lot of propaganda. And if you notice, the workers have put out an open letter to the public addressing the lies and the deliberate misinformation that the government continues to um, provide. Every time I hear of uh, nurses or doctors going on strike, I cringe, particularly in the midst of uh, COVID-19 and uh, other health conditions. So do you take into consideration the impact on the kind of services you are providing to the people of Zimbabwe? Most definitely. As a physician myself, um, I'm aware of the human costs that come with delayed provision of health care. And this is the reason why it has taken us 14 months to get to this point. We've written more than seven letters to the government appealing to them, requesting for us to engage and discuss on how we can make things better. But the government has not, over the last 14 months, engaged the workers. This is truly an action of last resort. And it is something that we, as the leaders, have desperately tried to avoid. But we've reached a point where it's apparent that the workers themselves can no longer sustain their own livelihoods. So this is truly an act of desperation. Dr. Kusotera, thank you so much uh, for taking time to talk with us. Thank you very much, sir. Dr. Tapiwanashe Kusotera is head of the Zimbabwe Health Apex Council, representing 23 health workers associations. He spoke from Harare with my colleague uh, James Bate. All attempts reach Dr. Polinas Sikosana, chair of the Zimbabwe Health Services Board, were not successful. Information Minister Monika Msavangwa did not respond to our request for comment. Tensions in Senegal reached a tipping point Friday over the government's decision to keep the opposition off the ballot in planned legislative elections. Thousands took to the street to show support for opposition leader Usman Sonko and demand President Makassal allow his opponents to run. Anika Hamashlak reports from Dakar. Plumes of smoke billowed into the air throughout Dakar's southern neighborhoods Friday as demonstrators set fire to tires and plastic bins. Tear gas canisters rained down from the sky, causing protesters to scatter. As they reemerged, they chanted, Makisel is a dictator, and hurled rocks at police officers. Graduate student Maimina Aidara was among them. He says what President Macky Sall is doing to Senegal is an injustice. What he's trying to do is not right. We, the people here in Senegal, are suffering. We're suffering. We're really suffering, he says. We want Sall to leave office, and the protests will continue every day, God willing, until the elections. Sall will step down, he says. Anger has mounted since Senegal's Constitutional Council invalidated the opposition's list of candidates for the July 31st legislative elections, preventing opposition leader Sonko and other opponents from running. The result of the elections will determine the makeup of Senegal's 165-member National Assembly, currently dominated by the president's coalition. On Friday, police were seen barricading Sonko's house, preventing him from attending Friday prayers and from the demonstration. Sonko came in third in the 2019 presidential election and is a candidate for 2024. Sonko was arrested last year on what many believe were dubious accusations of rape. The incident ignited a week of rioting that led to the deaths of 14 people. Two deaths were reported at Friday's demonstration, according to Agence France Presse, and three opposition members were arrested.
West Africa has suffered a string of coups in recent years, and any indication of instability in Senegal could have ramifications for the entire region. Hawaba is head of the Senegal office at the Open Society Initiative for West Africa. We are in a very volatile sub-region. Democracy is at risk, and Senegal is supposed to be a beacon of democracy, supposed to be a country that is pulling the region and the continent upward. And what we are witnessing is Senegal's democracy is sliding back since a few years now. Ba called on international bodies, such as the Economic Community of West African States and the African Union, to pressure Senegal to abide by democratic norms. The African Union is led by Macky Sall. Though many protesters at Friday's demonstration said they attended in support of Sanko, others had more general motives. Saidina Halifa Abakar said his main concern was inflation. The price of items such as rice and cattle have increased, he said, and with Eid al-Adha around the corner, he's worried the price of sheep will too. He says they've increased prices on everything and families are suffering. I came here to fight for my future and for that of my grandchildren. I'm not here for Usman Sonko. Politicians are all the same, he says. If we don't throw rocks at police officers, there will be no solution. Protesting is a right, he says. The protest took place despite a government ban. A June 8th protest had also been banned but was ultimately allowed to proceed. Protests are expected to continue with or without authorization. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. It's now time for Daybreak Africa Sports. And for that, let's go to Abuja for Samson O'Malley. Good morning, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, Douglas. We begin the sports with the news that the continent's football governing body has announced that the CAF Awards will be making a return next month after a three-year hiatus. This year's edition is scheduled to take place on Thursday, the 21st of July, 2022 in Morocco. CAF announced this in a statement on its website on Sunday. The CAF Awards will be held ahead of the final of the Africa's flagship women's competitions, the Women's African Cup of Nations, Morocco 20. 23 scheduled to take place between the 2nd and the 23rd of July 2022. In tennis news, Tunisian tennis star Ons Jabour won the final of the WTA tournament in Berlin on Sunday after Olympic champion Belinda Benchich was forced to retire after twisting her left ankle. Benchich slipped at the end of the first set and despite receiving treatment, she eventually retired with Jabour leading 6-3-2-1. Jabour had raced into a three-love lead after just nine minutes before going on to win the third WTA title of her career after wins on grass last year in Birmingham and on clay in Madrid last month. In athletics, Nigeria's Toby Amusan has set a new African record in the women's 100-meter hurdles. Amusan on Saturday set a new African record as she finished in pole position in the 100-meters hurdles in 12.41 seconds at the Diamond League meet in Paris, France. Amusan, before Saturday's race, was already the African record holder, having erased the previous long-standing record held by her compatriot Gloria Alose. However, while the initial record achieved at the Diamond League in Zurich nine months ago was 12.42 seconds, the 25-year-old has lowered it to a new lifetime best time of 12.41 seconds. 
Staying with the Diamond League, former South African national champion Luxolo Adams shot at the 22nd Berea for the first time in his career, storming into a convincing victory in the men's 200 meters race at the World Athletics Diamond League meeting in Paris, France on Saturday. Adams stopped the clock at 19.82 seconds, ripping 0.19 seconds off his previous personal best of 20.01 seconds, which he set in Perth in March 2018. In cricket news, Tanzania beat defending champions Kenya by 44 rounds to win the 8th Kwibuka T20 Cricket Tournament in Kigali at the weekend. The game at the Gahanga Cricket Oval in the Rwandan capital saw Tanzania winning the toss and opting to bat first. They went on to score 114 rounds all out in 20 overs. Kenya came in to bat in the second innings, scoring 20 runs all out in 20 overs for Tanzania to win by 44 runs. Tanzania were unbeaten in the tournament, winning eight matches in all. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Douglas, in Washington. Thanks, Samson. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington.